going to empty this. There's not a very big one here. I think that the bigger they are, the more you can put here. I can put my study notes and everything else to go along with it. <clears throat> I don't know if the Holy Spirit is impressing somebody and the worship has touched you in a special way, but there's I want to say for somebody who's feeling that, or maybe oftentimes, uh, as strange as it might be, the preaching may get your mind off of what the Holy Spirit's entertaining with you with in the moment. I've learned it's really important to pay attention to what God is speaking to you about in the moment. So if while I'm preaching or even in the moment, you're like, man, my heart is so tender toward God, and there's something the Lord is speaking to your heart, just sidetrack what I'm doing in the moment and listen to the Lord. I've had meetings where I've been in where I couldn't hardly resist the, the feeling like I was going to um, burst out in tears because I was overwhelmed with what God was speaking to me. And as the meeting or the, situ the thing was continued to go on, I felt like the Lord was encouraging me, stay there, stay with me, listen to me, be close to me in this moment. So that's what these services are all about. Every Sunday we come together, it's about getting closer to Jesus. It is all about getting closer to Jesus. I don't care if you have to dance in the back or if you have to go to a back room somewhere because God's impressing something on your heart. I've had those moments. I'm encouraging you, do what God's ministering to your heart in the moment. You don't know, maybe in this moment He's taking you aside and there's somebody who's burdening your heart. And you know the difference. When God's burdening your heart with somebody, you can't get them off of your mind and the more you think about them, the deeper the impression and the feeling you have in your spirit that this is an urgent matter. Don't miss your opportunity. Don't miss your moment with God. Uh, as I'm preaching, if the Holy Spirit is animating something and the word that I'm speaking to you, catch that. Write it down. Sidetrack again. Because oftentimes I think it's not the whole message. It's parts of the message that minister to us at the depth of our soul. And we need that. And what happens is, I think God highlights something and flashes it. Now we draw toward it. And it may be something we carry home, but I really want the Lord to move in our time. So I trust that as each one of us become very sensitive to God, that we learn how to, as a congregation, walk together in the presence of God. Let's read the first verse here. Um, this is I'm, I just wanted to title it real simple, Incarnation. I was asking the Lord, what should I preach about? And it wasn't just because it fell around the Christmas season, but how timely it would be. But I felt like God said, remind everybody of the Incarnation. Elevate the reality of how important this is. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. I'm going to read two verses, uh, and you'll stay in Hebrews chapter 9 for the next one. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And then I want you to go also to verses 12 through 15. It says this, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. Did you catch that? Once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, 
sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more? I don't know if you have a highlighter, but I would say underline that. Make sure you pay attention to that. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I'm going to say that one more time. To cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. By means of death, sorry, for, and for this reason, He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant and those who are called may receive the promise of the, internal, the eternal inheritance. Father, thank You for these verses. Thank You that throughout the Word of God, we are pay, it's uh, filled with the miraculous, the, the revelation of God in Him. Lord, it was meant for us to receive it wholly, God. And I pray in our hearts. Help us. Aid us this morning. Father, to go where You're taking us. Lord, not to tread any ground or lose any time in just being status quo or mediocre. Lord Jesus, we need You. Father, this community needs You. Lord, it needs You now. We need You now. And Lord, out of our hunger for You, we cry out to You. It seems to be, Lord, the way that you meet us is not just to have us call out, but to cry out. Lord, we need you desperately. We need you in every way. Lord, we cannot do life without you. Lord, you said in your word that without you we can do nothing. Lord, enlarge that in our hearts. Animate that into our spirit. And make that real to us. So that we understand the incarnation is a revelation that we cannot do anything without the assistance and presence and help and aid of God. Lord, we need You desperately. Lord, we need You even when we're satisfied. We need You when we're at our spiritual mountaintops. We need You just as desperately because God, nothing falls on the weight of humanity and stays in, in hope of. Lord, it all stands on what You do. So Jesus supernaturally... Men, all over this congregation, there's needs, heart needs here. Lord, there's spiritual needs right here, Father. And we need holy. We need to be made right. We need your purification. We need your help. We need your strength. Help us today, Jesus. We give you all the praise. We love you, Lord. Amen. 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 I want to hit on three points. The first one is the significance of the Incarnation. The significance of incarnation. And when I'm saying incarnation, I'm saying God came into a human body. We're talking about God coming into a human body. That's as simple as I can make it. I don't know about you, but if you just want to think about that, we've accepted it. And too much, we do this too often in our Christian lives, we accept it as true, and we don't think about the breadth and the length and the dynamic of the truth of it. And we need to take time to meditate and spend time to think about how incredible it is that the Creator of the universe, the heavens of the heavens can't contain Him. How can He fit within the framework of a human body? 
How is that possible? The truth is, is that nobody, not you or myself, can conceive the possibility of that. We do have to have on grounds to accept that God is God and that's, that He can do the impossible. But think about the implications of incarnation. One of the things we have to realize is, is that all other religions on the earth, except with a few people who want to claim some kind of incarnation as it were, what they want to have is this significance, or they lose their significance when there is no incarnation. And I'll tell you why. Because the God in the cosmos can have no adaptation to His creation if He so chose. So if we're going to Islam or any other religion, we can basically say <clears throat> their idea of God is a supreme being that nobody really ultimately can match up to. Hopefully in this life that you can do enough good works or enough works that that God wants to satisfy His interest. But when we talk of incarnation, we're talking about something completely different. It's not what you're doing for God. It's what you, can, you cannot do and only He can. It is showing you how hopeless, how incapable, how unable you really are. That's what incarnation really does. And it shows us how much God is willing to meet us in that depravity. How wonderful is that? Christianity could be better, better described as we're coming to grasp more and more our littleness and our finiteness in the grandness of our God. And as I think on and meditate and pray about the incarnation of God and how incredible that should appear to me. So essentially, brothers and sisters, I would say this. <clears throat> right now and even beyond our service, would you take some time this week and pray, Lord, make this deeper to me. In, make this engrafted in me. I don't want to just say that Jesus came in flesh and ended there. I want my heart to throb, my spirit to leap with inside of me when I think of the extravagance and magnificence and majesty that God became man and dwelt among us. And what does that all mean for me? So when it says, how much more shall the blood of Christ... Thank you. How much more shall the blood of Christ... Think about that, how much more. You know there's another place that says that in the Bible. Do you know where it says it? I know Joseph does. He remembers a sermon I preached years ago about how much more. And I'm going to... Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give? And there's two different places. One of them says, give the Holy Spirit to those that ask. <clears throat> and the other one says, give good things to those that ask. Now, when you read the good things, what do you think of? Well, I think that pretty much says that anything that's locked in the will of God for my life, anything that fits that category, that means he says, ask, and how much more? If you're evil, if you're just being human and have all this finiteness, and yet you have enough, even in your, your evil, the, your, the worst of the worst, you can still think to do good to your children and lavish them, pour out over them 
of your goodness and what you can do. So, fathers, we know we go out and work and we labor not in vain. We labor in love for our family, our children, our daughters, our sons. We give, we'll give everything. And I would say, I think, I think I can agreeably say the men that have children in this place, it looks to me like you would, uh, how would I say, exhaust all of your life to take care for them, even at the loss of your own happiness, if it were needed, because they are your happiness. Essentially, as I think about that, and I put it in the framework, maybe what Jesus is really saying is, if yet your height and the best of your doing good for your children, how much more? And when I took that in, I remember the Lord magnified that word, how much more, and I would like to do that this morning. How much more? Take a grasp at that. God, infinitely more. Infinitely more because He's infinitely more able. Infinitely more to give. He has an infinite capacity to look into the good that's needed and unwilling to be satisfied other than to do that good. And so God has to. I mean, we think about this oftentimes. If I do this thing, I have to go to sleep at night. So if I fail to do a good deed to somebody that I could have done good for, I have to go to bed at night living with myself. Well, essentially, God has to live with the nature of who He is. If He does not act out and do within the light of what He's capable of doing. Now think about that. That should thrill our hearts as we begin to pray over the will of God and lost humanity. Jesus came to save the lost. Well, maybe it's us today. <laughs> Lord, I'm lost. I'm depressed. I'm struggling. I love you, Jesus, but I'm going through some stuff. Maybe it's somebody you know. And when you look at them, you see that lostness, that hopelessness. And nothing is more hopeless than to have the knowledge of this Bible and yet have no reference to its life-giving power. Jesus didn't say what's impossible for man is possible with God so that we could go on in depression. That we could go on feeling like we're constantly bound by the same sin over and over again. Jesus didn't do that so that we could go on and say the church needs revived, but it's never going to be there. Look what's happened the last five to ten years. Whatever our complaint is, Jesus matches it and over matches it. So there's the sea of presence. One of the songs that I was a part that spoke the most to me, if the oceans were filled with ink, I say this oftentimes because I think it's the most one of the most powerful revelations of God's love put in human language. If the ocean was filled with link, ink and the sky of parchment made and every man ascribed by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. This is what we mean by incarnation. This is what we mean to the Christian when we say, you are an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ Jesus. Tap in right now. Take in, receive more of that. Why? Essentially, in light of that, I think we could say, Lord, why is that family member still lost? How can they be in the light of that? And I think God is doing one thing. He's pressing hunger inside of us. Spiritual hunger. 
where it's not just, Lord, satisfy me. It's, Lord, I, you could give me, pour out heaven, and I can still be an insatiable love for more. So significance, the significance in, of incarnation in light of all of that comes with opposition. And one of the things I felt like I, I think we should talk about is this. When people say back to us, are you telling me that, there, that with the, uh, the blood of bulls and goats, the blood of Jesus, that there's in the first verse we read, according to the law, all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. You're saying that there's only one way? There's only one way? And so essentially that's the struggle that people are going to come at you with. You might even have that struggle in your own mind. Is there only one way? And the, the reason is, is because when we say that, the moment, the argument against it is, and this is what the devil wants to use as a force, you're being bigoted. You're being a bigoted Christian by saying that one, your faith in Jesus there is no other faith that, that can stand. You're not going to get saved by faith in Allah. Or you're not going to get saved by other gods or other religions. You're saying that Jesus is the only way. Is that what you're saying? Is that what you're getting at? And they want to trap you there. And society wants to get in. The devil wants to lock you in on that. Because he doesn't want the testimony of Jesus to be validated. He wants to make you look like a bigoted soul that's only oppressing others by telling them that your way is the only way. And most of what we have in this life, folks, like it or not, we cannot say my way is the only way in most things. Why do I say that? It's because when it comes to doing a job, most of us can do it many different ways and still have a good product. Sometimes more efficient, sometimes better, sometimes uh, longer lasting, whatever the case is. So in many ways we can say, no, my way is not the only way in most things. You could try it a different way but the end product has to be the same. But that's not what we have written here. We don't have a written, there's another way besides the blood of Jesus. There's another salvation form than the cross of Jesus Christ. The great thing is that it's not your way. Jesus, it was His way. If you're having a problem with it, Jesus said He was the only way, and that His way was the only way. Not mine, His. I'm only supporting that He must be right. I'm standing by the fact that Jesus must be right. I love this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8, Paul confronting this idea in his culture. By honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true. I want to give you a definition for bigotry. Definition, obstinate or unreasonable attachment to a belief, opinion, or faction in particular, prejudice against a person or people on the basis of their membership of a particular group. Is that what we are today? Are we prejudiced toward everybody else who doesn't believe like us? Is that what... And I started to think about when people... Because are there bigoted Christians? Absolutely there are. Do they need to repent? Absolutely they need to repent. There's a lot of people who, because they've actually taken something that's out of the Bible and they've used that in formation with something that they're proud about, something that they, they're opinionated about, 
and it's out of context, but it still finds itself in Scripture. And they are going to make sure that everybody else has to be bowed down to this as far as that's concerned. There is pride within Christians. So how do we recognize the difference between what is bigotry, pride, prejudice, and actually just stating what Jesus said? And I'll tell you the difference really comes down to humility. It comes down to the fact that when I look at the other individual, am I looking at them as an enemy or am I broken with compassion because they have the same evil at work in their life as I did? I cannot heal myself of my own blindness. Jesus did that. And I'm praying for you that God would heal you of your blindness. Yes, there's a blindness there. And until you know what Jesus has actually done in the will of God for your life, you're not going to understand what I'm talking about. From your angle, you're going to call me prejudice. But when you get onto the side of being saved, you're going to see a difference. The problem is this. We are so inundated with this idea in our culture that tolerance is the way of salvation in a culture that's telling us, you know what, we cannot tell anybody that my way or what I do or my morality is greater than your morality. So instead of having some kind of objective authority or an authority outside of ourselves that we have to put up with everybody else's form and idolatry and ideas of what right and wrong are, even though so far from diverse from one another and so diabolically opposed to each other, but we still have to have a tolerant society. And the problem is it's caving in and on itself and they don't want to recognize it. But when you get down to it, tolerance is not a true escape from bigotry. It's not. Why? Because the, the ones who want to be tolerant are tolerant for everything but intolerance. We can't say no to that. You can't say no to something. The moment you become that kind of person and you can tolerate intolerance, you've become intolerable yourself. There's no way to say it's tolerance is the attitude that we need to have. And that's where progressive Christianity is coming from. That's where compromise to the standard of what Jesus said. And anymore, we're not finding people being born of God because we found out that if we were tolerant enough, everybody's ultimately saved, even though they're sinners to the highest degree. So tolerance isn't going to help us in this. But there's a place where tolerance is necessary, but that's not the ultimate. It's called long-suffering. And so when we see this, what I see is this one-sided person. You tell me your view. No, you don't tell me your view. I tell you mine, and that's the way it is. But where it should be for most of us is I'll listen to you, and I'll think about where I'm coming from, and I will choose a side. That is not bigotry, brothers and sisters. It's not prejudice. I must choose a side. You chose a side. All of us will choose a side. But it's that I listened to both sides first before I made that decision. I'll listen to anybody who tells me they don't believe in God, they don't believe in the Bible. I'll listen to them. And I won't form, first of all, what I believe about it before I've heard it. Just tell me what your statements and beliefs are. I'll listen to you. I will still make a choice on what side I'm going to be on. The problem is, it may be an offense to God, it may be sin as far as the decision is, but I'm going to tell somebody that my belief in Jesus doesn't have to have an anti-I-can't-hear-you policy. I don't listen to a word you say. 
That's where the problem most of the time lies. I won't listen to it. Marriages are destroyed as a result of it. Churches are constantly going through problems as a result of brothers who won't listen to one another. And sometimes if you listen to the other side, you'll be like, well, there's not all of it is, but I'll hear it. Most of our problem is wrapped right around not what unbelievers believe. It's what the believers believe. <laughs> really, it's really good down to this book. Well, I believe in this. I don't believe in that. And well, I got my Bible verse to support it. Will I still listen to you? Absolutely. Take some time and let's talk. I want to hear what you believe and why you believe it. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why. I think that should be in all of our lives. The significance of Jesus' incarnation. One of the reasons I say this is because if God would come down on earth to somebody like me who doesn't deserve His ear, His attention, and His time, and He would come down when I can't and be there while I'm an enemy, why can't I be that for somebody else? I was an enemy to the Gospel and Jesus gave me the time of the day. Why would I be anything else to anybody else? So I'm not trying to be a tolerant person. In other words, you tell me that sin is acceptable in the eyes of God, I'll go back to the Bible. But why do you believe that? What you'll find oftentimes when somebody says something, they're protecting something else. It's not what they really believe. It's that something else has gotten in the way of life and they're mad or they're struggling with some pain in life. Tolerance would not do well in our legal system. That's one of the things we have to remember. Imagine a legal system that had nothing but tolerance. Anybody can do anything. I don't care what you do. I don't care who you've murdered. You're just going to get tolerance. Well, it's only going to encourage widespread crime rate, not going to help discourage it. Significance of this incarnation comes with urgency. I would say, if we understand that the only way, if you actually had the only way, now let me say it like this. Let's just say you found the cure of cancer. You and I actually received the cure of cancer, and you're the only one that knows about it. And you decided with that knowledge of the cancer, you have the only way that they can be saved from cancer. And you hold on to that and you don't say anything about it. You imagine the urgency that you're the only one in a world full of people with cancer, that many, many dying right now, and you could be the open door to them knowing that they don't have to die. There's an urgency. Brothers and sisters, if we believe the gospel is what the gospel is, and this is the only way for us to be saved, there's an urgency for those of us who know it to start sharing it. I cannot say it any other way. It is not just immoral. It is a crime not to tell people about the gospel. It is not just immoral. It is a crime to not tell people about the gospel. Imagine my excuse being, well, I'm afraid I'll be rejected. It's still a crime. It's a crime. Well, I don't know if I can say it rightly. It's still a crime because the information needs to be shared. Even at its most uh, fundamental level, we still need to share with people about the gospel. Mark 8.38 and Luke, I mean Ezekiel 33.8. Listen to this. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
and also Ezekiel 33.8. It says, When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn that wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his inequity, but his blood will I require at your hand. Two very serious verses in the Bible. I don't think that I would be taking it out of context to say that this is shameful that so many in their Christian life have accepted for themselves the salvation of Jesus and have become almost silent in telling others. Almost absolutely silent in telling others. I don't know what the judgment of God looks like. I don't ultimately know what it's going to be like to stand and be at the judgment seat of God. And I certainly don't know what it's going to be like to be the sinner that never received Jesus Christ in his life, had rejected the, save, the, the salvation of God through Jesus Christ, and lived in my sin and stand at the judgment of God. I do not know what that's going to be like. I will say this though, it has left fearful wanderings in my mind thinking about the, the tragedy that goes beyond any kind of description of death. The idea that somebody is going to stand before the Creator of the universe, the one who breathed the breath of life inside of them, and they have not found His salvation. That is death upon death. I cannot imagine it. And we have family members and people we love. And the thought of them has gotten to where we don't even cry for them anymore. Our hearts are not aching and burning for the lostness of their souls. And yet, essentially, it's almost like we forgot the, the mire from which we were hewn. What God did to save us. I was on that track. Lost, lost, lost. And Jesus is here in one of these verses, and God in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 8, reminding of how grossly evil this is to have it and withhold it. You're, it's the only way. If there were multiple ways or a thousand different ways, it would be a different story. But there's only one way to be saved. There's only one name given among men whereby we must be saved. But the name of Jesus and that urgency should be in our hearts. Because if Jesus was really incarnation, if God went to that depth to save me, and the only way that He could save me, and the only way that He could save anybody else in the world, it's so important that they get to find out about it. It's so important we get the message out there one way or another that we don't let people die in their sins. Grace does not discharge us from duty. It enables us for it. Grace does not discharge us from it. It enables us to do it. Significance of the incarnation calls for humility. Because here's the other problem. This is the other side of that. We have Christians that will go tell. But boy, are they doing it in the most wrong way you could ever have told the information of the gospel. I'm not telling you that I'm your deliverer. I'm telling you Jesus is your deliverer. But why isn't there humility to go with it? I want you to read this quote from, uh, well, actually it didn't have a name for it. It's an anonymous, but I want to read this quote to you. 
God's grace and forgiveness, while free to the recipient, are always costly for the giver. From the earliest parts of the Bible, it was understood that God could not forgive without sacrifice. No one who is seriously wronged can just forgive the perpetrator. But when you forgive, that means you absorb the loss and the debt and you bear it yourself. All forgiveness then is costly. All forgiveness is costly. Jesus paid the price. We need to know about it. And so why am I saying this? Because I remember when I, when I was growing up in our alcoholic home, and I remember being so depressed, and I remember so many suicidal thoughts, and I can tell you that somebody just encouraging me and telling me that they cared about me and loved me wasn't good enough anymore. I was so lost that that would not have done it. It would have been good, but it wouldn't have been good enough. I remember the pain and the lies that had been filtered through my mind. and I didn't know how much of it was the devil and how much of it was me, but I know how lost I was. And I needed the Gospel. Oh, did I need the Gospel. I needed to know. Because see, I had been in church and I had been in a religious experience. I had gone to church with some friends that didn't know Jesus. But I didn't know that Jesus was at real. I didn't know. So when somebody shared that with me and they continued to press into my life and start to make me more aware of what I didn't know and what I was confused about and my misunderstandings, then the world started, a new world of God opened up to me through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I can tell you it was awesome to have my, my heart free of that depression. It was amazing to no longer feel like I wanted to commit suicide and a whole new purpose had developed. And boy, was church my go-to. It wasn't a go-to because there's a religious place to be. It was like I loved to be there. You know what I found out? I found out it doesn't matter what the person is playing. It doesn't necessarily matter what the man is preaching. I'm not saying that you can preach false doctrine. What I'm saying is when you're hungry of God, you find God in any space. You know where He's at. Your heart is there and God isn't empty because somebody's not honoring Him. He's there in the moment because somebody's hungering for Him. So the uniqueness of incarnation. So we have that there's the significance of it. We have the uniqueness of Why do we need something so unique? Is because we need to clear up some confusion. We need some confusion cleared up. We need to know who God is. We know which God to serve. And we know why we're serving Him. The incarnation and the resurrection. I had to think about that. The incarnation and the resurrection of Christ sets Christianity apart from every single religion. Some will try and claim a resurrection. Some will try and claim some kind of an incarnation. But none of them have evidence backing both of them. And this is so vital to our Christian faith. Both the resurrection and the incarnation of Jesus Christ is so vital that the only way that we can say Christianity is the true religion is because of them. And if they didn't exist, then they wouldn't be any better than the rest of them out there and anything else that you wanted to live for. I remember one day I was in a, I was in a class in my high school class, and it was a marketing class. 
And I really enjoyed the class. And I did my very best. I, I was at the very top of my game in the class. I had, at one point, I had uh, 101% in the class. And I remember one of the students had looked over the, they had numbers. They didn't have names. They had numbers and then you grade next to it. And one of, one of the students had looked at it and said, who has 101% in this class? And it was like, nobody comes, nobody gets, uh, just, uh, it wasn't a test. It was the class grade was because he had given enough bonus. Well, I'm sharing that because I want to say this, that it was important to me that whenever I studied and I took a test, that I had the right answer. I studied to make sure that I got, a, I tried to get 100% on my test. And I wasn't the kind of craziness that was like, well, if I didn't, I had to downsize myself and say bad things about myself because I didn't get 100%. I just wanted to do my best for Jesus. That's really all that was at the heart of it. And I remember one day I was taking a, the test and the teacher said to me, no, he's, well, he said before the test, he said, if you have any questions, just ask. I raised my, my hand because I was thinking it could be one of two, and I can't quite figure this one out. And so I asked him the question. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I remember him saying to me, looking at me, and he says, well, which one do you think it is? And I knew what he was getting at. He's, he was going to hint to me what the right answer was. And I said, no, 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 don't worry about it. <laughs> I'll just, I'm, I'm going to do this right. And I knew every eye in that classroom was looking at me. Every student paid attention to what I did. Because if I said anything about God and I did anything, they were convicted and any time I would mess up, they wanted to find me in it. And so it was like, Lord, I don't know how to, I can't keep my life perfect, but they're looking for it and it's crazy. And so I said, no. I'll, I'll go without. And I remember when he was correcting the test, and he was doing that while we were still in class, he, uh, in the middle of correcting my test, he says, do you want to change your answer? <laughs> Why am I saying that? Is because the uniqueness of the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ says that we can take the test with 100% guarantee. We can clear up the confusion right away and we can know that we are going to heaven. We can know that we are in the right way. We can know that this is, uh, unlike any other religions, this one is true. I can trust in Jesus. Man, do we need the uniqueness of the incarnation in our life. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16 says this, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience. And when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Isn't that wonderful? That when I share the gospel, they don't just hear what I say, they're watching my life. And you know why people aren't really living Christianity? Because they haven't cleared up the confusion. They're not, a, they're not solid and fully persuaded that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. They're just not there. And so, but when you get there, you can't help it. I gotta live this thing. There's nothing else, there's no other way of salvation but Jesus. And I love to share that with somebody else, not in a pride sense. Man, wouldn't they want to know it just like I would? And the uniqueness of this incarnation compels itself, it compels us by its own nature. 
you don't have to sell it up. You don't have to tell people you're going to live a happy life. All your life is going to be perfect. God's going to make everything great. That's why we sell the gospel. We don't sell the gospel by selling it up. The gospel doesn't have to get dressed up. There's not a day in the life of a Christian where we have to dress up the gospel, make it look more worldly, fit more the attention of the people around us, just share the gospel for what it is. It will attract those that want it for what it is. Everybody else that we're dressing it up for is really just going to take it as the fad for the moment and they're going to discard it when they find the next fad. The only ones we're really appealing to are the ones who want it for what it is. For what it is. Don't dress it up. Just let it be what it is. You know, some of our old songs are singing some of our old hymns. Some of them, they're timeless. They can go on forever and ever. But some people are like, well, it doesn't have the world's music to it. It doesn't have the same tones. But did you hear the message of the Word of God in it? Don't lose heart because it doesn't have the same sound to it. Remember that it's just pure alone, all on its own. And then remember this other thing, brothers and sisters. The uniqueness means that there's contrast. And contrast is attractive. Contrast is attractive. Peter was drawn to Jesus because he had the words of eternal life. It was a stark contrast to the elite of his day. Peter was looking at Jesus and he was looking at everybody else in the religious elite of the day. And he says, Jesus is a contrast. He's so uniquely different. And he's such a contrast to everything else. Jesus was original. He was unadulterated with holiness and humility. Holiness and humility. That's the power of Jesus' life, is that he was holy and it was humble. And Jesus didn't command us to fit in. Don't you love that? Man, I finally, when I was in high school, everything was about fitting in. And I don't know at what age I started realizing that I didn't have to fit in. I could be my own guy or whatever the case was. And I said, would say this, because Jesus didn't command it, that's attractive to me. Because as much as the world is trying to be uniquely different, uniquely individualistic, that they are strangely alike. Trying to be uniquely different, they're strangely alike. To be the best you is becoming sickly common. And isn't that true? To be the best you is becoming sickly common. So the difference between the incarnation is this. The incarnation paved the way of the gospel. And that's why Paul could say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. So you can have good human beings, or you can have the gospel. That doesn't mean the gospel doesn't produce good human beings. It just means it's second to the whole thing. It's not the primary. And I want to say a few things just to highlight this thought to you. Only through the gospel. The difference of the gospel is this. It's the only way that God could justify sinners without being unjust. The incarnation bringing about the gospel was the only way that God could justify sinners without becoming unjust. He couldn't just forgive you and write it off without having the gospel and somebody to be the sacrifice for us. The only way that sinners could be saved without justifying sin is because of the incarnation of God. In other words, I'm right with God and I can't justify living in known sin because of what God has given, what God has provided to get me out of it, to keep me from it. Thirdly, the only way to keep good works and self-righteousness from being the basis of our salvation was through the gospel. 
It's the only way. If you didn't provide me an incarnation and a resurrection, that's why it's, uh, it's unfit in all of the other religions of the world, is because it's the only way that God could make salvation without it being works-based. Did you do enough good deeds in order to make it into heaven? Did you love enough people? Did you care enough? Did you give enough? Did you keep yourself enough from the world in order to? And that will be the difference weighing in on the day that we stand before God is that it was on the basis that Jesus made me right and His rightness renewed me and changed me. Fourth, it's the only way God could advocate the righteous if they sin. It's the only way God could advocate us if we sin. Because if there were no gospel, God could not advocate. He could just judge. He could just judge. Even though He had love, an infallible, infinite love, He could not, with that love, take us to heaven because He didn't have a way to bridge the gap over the sin. It's the only way to make heaven available for humanity. It's the only way. It's the only way to keep from enabling evil from grace or helping sin with mercy. So in other words, in order to be merciful and kind and good, it would actually create an avenue that would make it more appropriate to live in sin and to be more uh, ungodly in your behavior. But because He made Himself such a lowly sacrifice, we know that we cannot look at grace as an enablement for sin, but the very thing that crushes the, the idea, the integrity of our heart could even justify it in a little bit doesn't even make sense anymore. It doesn't even make sense. If God would come down into earth and become a man in flesh and die for my sins, it doesn't make sense to justify sin on any grounds. And to finish, I want to share these last two quotes. And they were from, what's his name? Uh, uh, Tim Keller. And I love this quote. He says, The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Man, that's wonderful. And then he says this to back it up. If you have not grasped the Gospel fully and deeply, you will return to being condescending, condemning, anxious, insecure, joyless, and angry all the time. See, I, I, I ran into something. I realized this, and I'm still realizing it to this day. So understand you're in good company. When I first became a Christian, I was convicted over my sin big time. I felt so like every sin needed to be destroyed all at once. And I went about to try to be the best kind of Christian I could be. And I found that I continually failed at being better. I worked so hard at it. But what I found also was the secret to an overcoming life seemed to be actually just getting close to God. It was like as if the barrier to being able to come was removed through the cross, so come, just as you are. Perverted, diluted, ruined, messed up, and then spend time with God and let God do the work of the Gospel inside of you. And then things were changing in my life, but it wasn't because I was making it happen. It's because God was doing it. Oh, if we could just get that in the heart of our brothers and sisters. 
If that were the only message you preached for the rest of your life, disciples of Jesus, wherever you go and you share with people, you are a failure in yourself. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. That's what you are as a human being. But God made up the difference in every way through the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus. Find your way at the throne of Jesus. Find your way to Him. Man, does that open up the highway to everybody. Man, that doesn't disengage anybody. I don't give a care who they are. And that's why I think Jesus looked, looked His audience in the face, I'm sure, and He would to us today. And He said, love your enemies. Do good to those that despitefully use you and persecute you. You have nothing but power through the Gospel to be free from the pain of the past, from what others have done, and you can love them and bring them into the Gospel through the revelation of the Gospel at work in your life. Man, what God wants to do in our community as we share the Gospel in word and in humility. I want to share this one more thought with you. This is one of these humbling moments for me, but it was powerful. I worked with a guy for a number of years and I remember this happened twice. I think I've shared this before. My boss had us flip a coin of who was going to do the job. And it was getting underneath the house, getting this heavy pump from all the way to the other end and pulling it back through the hole and fixing it and then bringing it back under. And it was a hard job and neither of us wanted to do it. That was the reality. I was a good Christian man and I could admit I didn't want to do the job. Not even close. I would be happy to let him do it. And I remember he had us flip the coin, and I won the toss. And then he looked at me, and he said, now, James, you choose. I won, and I get to choose. And I thought, wow, what a point. And, and I, I decided, and I felt like, and I knew the only thing that really mattered to me at that moment was, it wasn't now about the job and who was going to be doing it. It was about, Lord, I want you to get glorified through this. And I want him to see what it would look like and essentially, if you were living inside of me and him to get the best experience of God in the moment, and I felt compelled, I felt desiring to do it, I said, I'll do it. I think both of them jaws dropped. Either that or they looked at me like they had a jaw dropped, and they were like, I can't believe that's happening. That's just one significant moment of how impactful the gospel can be in one life. And, you know, it happened to the same guy with a different boss in another time. And I remember watching our relationship with one another as we worked together change dramatically, constantly, because of the influence of God's Spirit on that job site. I'm saying that because I want to encourage you. I am a nobody. I am a nobody. I am not standing up here because I'm a somebody that has something better to offer than anybody else out there. It's all the same cross. It's all the same Jesus. Give it freely because you got it freely. Understand you have the gift. That's why we give it. It's incredible what God's going to do in your circle. So I want to give you an opportunity to pray about that. Right now, as we're getting this moment to close this service, I want to give you an opportunity to pray about the next soul that God's going to put in your favor. The next person that maybe you've had a difficulty with in your past, even your own kids, Lord, help me this time to be you in front of them in Jesus' name. So I want to give an opportunity for that. You can come right now as you are. The Holy Spirit wants to move right now. I believe the Holy Spirit wants to undo some burdens and lift some stuff. 
right here in this place. And don't tell me you don't carry things, because we do. We do, even myself. So I want to pray. And uh, actually, I'm going to have Caleb's back there right now, I think. Caleb, I'm going to have you pray, because I'm going to let the worship team just take this time before the Lord, too. I feel like this is for all of us. It is for all of us. And I want to pray. I want to pray over you. But as I'm praying, feel free to come up front. Just lift your heart to Jesus. The Lord wants to minister to us in amazing ways right now. Father, thank you that your grace is not for tomorrow or in, uh, in another five minutes or 30 minutes from now. Your grace is right now. Your grace is right now. You want to enable us in this moment, Father. So over this church and over my brothers and my sisters, I pray release them in Jesus' name. Father, I don't know if there's anybody in this place, but I sense there's people that are carrying some pains of their past, Lord, with other brothers and sisters. And I want to pray, Lord, they're released today because they can't release themselves. They can't get over the pain that they've felt or the struggle that they've gone through, but they need to let go so that it doesn't carry on into sin in their life, Lord. Jesus, I love you, and I thank you right now that the grace right now is free to everybody in this place Lord, not a one of us have to pay another minute or wait another, another second for it. Oh, Jesus, not a dime more. We have it right now. So, Lord, would you set this place free and set it on fire? Lord, we have more moments with you. And I pray, Lord, for release in this house. Release in this place. Lord, every one of my brothers and sisters, make them as free in the grace of God as the price you paid in order for them to be that free. I do not want anything else, Lord, because I know that you want the glory that comes from it. Praise you, Jesus. Brothers and sisters, uh, will you?